Welcome to the Moms of Tweens and Teens podcast. If some days you doubt yourself and you don't know what you're doing, if you've ugly cried alone in your bedroom because you felt like you're failing, well, I just want you to know you're not alone and you have come to the right place. Raising tweens and teens in today's world is not easy. And I'm on a mission to equip you to love well and to raise emotionally healthy, happy tweens and teens that thrive. I believe that moms are heroes and we have the power to transform our family and to impact future generations. If you are looking for answers, encouragement, and to become more of the mom and the woman that you want to be, welcome. I'm Cheryl Gould, and I am so glad that you're here. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. Today, you are going to hear an incredibly powerful story. I'm with Pat and Tammy McLeod, who have written the book, Hit Hard, One Family's Journey of Letting Go of What Was and Learning to Live Well with What Is, and I could not put this book down. In the fall of 2008, Pat and Tammy's son, Zach, collapsed on a high school football field, and he sustained a severe brain injury. And Pat and Tammy were faced with a devastating reality that things would never be the same. And I really wanted to have them both on the show because each Each one of us has experienced grief and losses in our lives, and yet I found that we often don't know how to deal and navigate with our grief, pain, and losses. It can be a complex and lonely journey, and one that we want to avoid at all costs. And in this interview, you're going to hear Tammy and Pat share how they have walked and continue to walk through ambiguous loss. Honestly, I really don't know if I've ever been so moved by someone's story as much as Pat and Tammy's. I was so drawn to both of them, their faith and honesty, that I literally was so moved and at such a loss for words that I ended up having to edit the heck out of this podcast because I was really speechless and felt like I was sitting on sacred ground. And I believe that you will feel the same when you hear what they have to share. Pat and Tammy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm honored and privileged to have you be here. It's great to be here, Cheryl. Thanks. Before you share your story, I want to start with you telling our listeners a little bit about you and what you do. Pat and I are Harvard chaplains, and we've been doing college ministry for 36 years now. So we meet with 18 to 22-year-olds. We do speaking and teaching, pastoral counseling, and leading small groups and large groups. And I just started leading grief groups on campus. So besides our work, uh, we have four adult children, 
and they're from 23 to 30 years old. Wow. So leading the grief group, did that come out of, did you just start doing that? Yes. I learned a lot about grieving by having to grieve. (laughs) And I wanted to be able to help students do the same. And I've been doing it with a Harvard counselor now for two years. Hmm. And every time the group is very strong and people do a lot of grief work, it's been encouraging watching students engage grief. So important to give voice to our grief and very grateful we're going to be talking about that uh, today and your story. So you've written a book together that is called Hit Hard. I'm going to hold it up for the people that are going to be watching on video. One family's journey of letting go of what was and learning to live well with what is. And it's a powerful, honest story about grief, loss, love, and faith. And in a moment, our lives can change, right? And, and that's what happened in your life is in a, in a moment, everything changed on that September day, 2008. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, I'll uh, uh, tell you, we were, that's actually the beginning of the school year. So for us as chaplains, we were, we were that night at the first large group meeting of our ministry in the city. And if you can just imagine the largest lecture hall on campus filled with students who've been all over the country and world coming back together. It was like the ending of a rock concert because we have music and stuff like that and very festive. People are happy, joyful, loud. When all of a sudden a girl, a Harvard student comes up behind me and impatiently interrupts a conversation I'm in with another student and says, your son's trying to reach you. Now, this was our son, Nate, who was our third oldest child. He was home alone uh, doing homework. Uh, Our youngest son was actually with us at the meeting. Our, uh, Our oldest daughter had just gone away to college. And then our second son, Zach, was at a football scrimmage. Anyway, Nate who's on the phone, just lays into me as soon as I put the phone, her, this girl's phone into my ear saying, dad, why aren't you answering your phone? Uh, parents have been calling and then coaches have been calling. Now the hospital is calling. Zach's been hurt. And um, I put my hand over one ear because I wasn't sure what I was hearing and got outside. And he said, dad, uh, they're airlifting Zach to a hospital. He, he collapsed on a, on a football field. And they say that he is going to have to undergo an emergency brain surgery and they need permission. They need to talk to you right now. And so I went back in, got Tammy and Soren, uh, and we sped to the hospital that we had never been to before. And when we arrived, we met with the doctor who told us that Zach had a bleed going on in his brain and that they were going to need to open up his skull cap and remove a blood clot and also, um, he cauterized some broken blood vessels. And then he said soberly, you know, this could result in death, uh, but he could also have a full recovery. And uh, I need you to sign right here. So we did give us a minute to pray with Zach and who was just laying still in his football outfit, unconscious and intubated. And we prayed for him and 
Um, then they whisked him away. So five hours later, uh, the nurse came and got us from the waiting room and uh, brought us to the doctor who told us what well, we did, what we, we could do. And uh, now we just have to wait. Um, so Zach, in the, you know, the, that's, that's the beginning of the story. Um, from there, it's basically learning that Zach survived, our marriage has survived, our faith has survived, but everything has changed. Um, a portion of Zach's brain didn't survive. And that was kind of our introduction into this, this new world of, of ambiguous loss. What was that like for you, Tammy, when you got that news, when you were standing there hearing that he might not live, that he had to undergo the surgery? Since I missed the phone call, Patches came and grabbed my hand and says, we need to go to the hospital. The whole drive, I kept asking him questions. <laughs> say it again, say it again, what's going on? So I didn't realize when we got there how bad it was until I saw Zach, and then it finally hit. Um, he was not doing well. He had a big swollen bump on the side of his head, and he, we weren't able to communicate with him at all. And when the doctors said death before recovery or anything in between, that's when it finally just hit me that he might not actually come back from the surgery. Well, you know, one of the things that stood out to me in the book was what the nurse said to you. He was doing well, and then his brain started swelling. Yeah. You got the news he needed another surgery. Right. Uh, they told us, you know, eventually we're going to wake him up from this medically induced coma. And when we do, you're going to need to have your energy. So now is not the time to keep staying with him overnight. Now is the time for you to go home and, and rest, get as much rest as you can. And they and there were some positive trends at that point. They were He wasn't getting worse, but it wasn't stopping, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but then at about two in the morning, two or three in the morning, we woke up to a phone call. Oh, and I should say this. They said that if they do do that second surgery, um, he didn't say this. It was a nurse that told us this, yeah, like someone yeah. who worked in the, in the ICU. He said, you know, let me just advise you. If they want to go in and do that second surgery, make sure you get a second opinion because I've never seen anyone have a complete recovery who's had that surgery. And so that was in the back of my mind when, when the phone rang, they informed us. They can no longer control the brain swelling. They're going to have to do the second surgery and they've already called the doctor and he's on his way to the hospital. And so we raced back to the hospital and got there and I did what that nurse suggested. I said, can doc, can you give me, can we get a second opinion? And he said <laughs> very shrewdly, he said, well, you have five doctors around you right now. Oh. You can ask them. And they all just nodded approvingly. This is, you know, if you want your son to live, you've got to do this. Wow. Devastating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. I was so struck by just your honesty and transparency through the whole process and how you took turns sharing in the book from your, from your perspective. Oftentimes, it was the same. You were talking about the same situation, mm -hmm. but how you saw it so differently and how you navigated that grief so differently. And that caused some challenges in your relationship. Can you speak to that? Whoever wants to has speak to that first. 
Yes, it was tough. I had a really close mother-son bond with Zach, but then I had a close spiritual bond too. Zach and I would pray together, read scripture, talk about our hopes and dreams for the future, sing worship songs together. So I was dealing with a lot of loss as I was watching the end result. We, he didn't die, but he also didn't fully recover. So it was the in-between that we were left with. Mm-hmm. And as I saw that we were going to be left with the in-between, I just um, started grieving. But Pat didn't want to hear my sadness. <laughs> so... I could only talk for a few minutes and then he said, no, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And he can tell his own story on why maybe that was, but we had a lot of conflict around this because I was trying to grieve my loss and let go. And he was looking at all the great things about, we still have Zach. Mm-hmm. yes we do but he's not the same so I'm sure he has something to say about this too mm-hmm. yeah I think my uh, you know I, I often say that it, it wasn't just that I grew up having never been taught how to grieve but I'd actually been taught not to grieve that was yeah. how I was raised and so um, you know part of this was the world of athletics my dad was an incredible coach so was my mom and one of the ways that you're taught to deal with pain as an athlete is to, you know, to tough it out. You, you know, big boys don't cry. You show no visible sign of weakness. You um, focus only on the positive and uh, things you can control. And so, you know, for me, that was not only the way I personally dealt with this, uh, but it was also the obligation I felt like I had to my family which was to keep them focused on the positive, uh, to be that stable, like I'd say, the unmoved mover, the the the, the one like that, the rock. Yeah, the rock. That's the word. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and um, and yet that's, and I'm still learning this. So this isn't like a done thing for me. But this yeah. is yeah. not This is not what they needed. They what what Tammy needed was not someone who would fix her pain but someone who would validate her pain. And I don't think I was able to do that. And I think part of it is when you get married to someone, you just envision and assume that that's the person that's going to be there for you when you're experiencing life's greatest pains. The problem is, is usually when you're really close, like we are in our marriage, one person's pain is the other person's pain. When when you're, it's not like, like one of your kids gets hurt and one of you feels it and the other doesn't. And so, yeah, I just, I just think that you both are so needy, needing someone that can absorb and hold you uh, that I wasn't able to be that for Tammy. Yeah. I know that you both have such a strong faith. How did your faith get you through this? Yeah. So I, Never asked. I know it was really common in the books I was reading that people would ask why God. So I never asked that question, but I just kept running to God and crying to him. Mm -hmm. So I stayed in the Psalms for about five years. So Psalms are the prayer book of the Hebrew people and the praise of God is in there, but also lament. 
And so I just needed to watch others lament. And these psalmists just cried out to God. They were honest. They were real. And so that's what I did too. I just copied them as I read the Psalms and just experienced the nearness of God. So there was one Psalm in particular, 34, that says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So I had read that verse before, but now I experienced it. So it wasn't like we were some special couple that experienced this, but it's actually God's nature to be near people in suffering. That's what he does. Yeah. Uh, and you, you felt that. Yeah. How, how about for you, Pat? Um, yeah, I would, you know, we, we have been asked in some of our interviews, you guys are both chaplains. That means you're, you know, religious people. And, and yet you've had this tragic thing happen to just this kid. That's just a really great kid. You know, like how, certainly you must have at times doubted your faith, right? Tell us about that. And, you know, the first time it happened, we both kind of looked at each other and we're like, we didn't know what to say. And then we realized, you know, and so I've been, I, I came up with a, the response I wish I would have uh, given to that question about five hours later. And the, my answer is this, that basically people need to understand I have without a doubt doubted my faith multiple times. I've had questions, wrestled with my beliefs that there even is a God, but not during this time and not at all actually in this journey with Zach. In fact, it's been just to the contrary, because as I think back on my life and I think about like there are probably five moments in life that are just so memorable and so like stunning because there was this almost there was this feeling of being overwhelmed by this the almost visceral physical sensation of, of there be, being in the presence of the divine being. And, and God was, I was just overwhelmed by him, his presence. But each of those, four, four of the five of those occurred in the context of this loss with Zach. But I'm quick to add that the God who met me in those moments was not like I joked earlier about the unmoved mover. It wasn't the philosopher God. Um, it was the crucified God. Mm. It was it was a God who's come into the world and who suffered a, a, a tragic and torturous death, who understands pain. It's a father who had to endure himself the, the, the witness, witnessing his own son's suffering in order to accomplish a salvation that is going to one day rescue all of, the, all of us from, from a, a world that's full of pain and suffering and death. So to me, what happened on this journey was something that just brought me deeper into yeah. my understanding of and appreciation of the Christian story of the gospel of a crucified God who loves us, who laid down his life for us, who suffered for us. About a week before this happened or a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. you took a trip to Africa with Zach before the, the accident. And he actually said something to, to you on that trip that was pretty profound. Cheryl, that, that summer, ironically, uh, we had taken the kids 
to South Africa where we were working. It was in the midst, it was at the peak of the AIDS pandemic. And we were there to just see if we could get the students that we work with as close as possible to one of the biggest problems in the world, you know, confronting the world at that time, it was a pandemic. And, um, and see if we couldn't find a way of linking some of the resources of Boston and these schools in this city with a place that was really under-resourced and in a, in a desperate crisis. And while we were there, we lived uh, on a campus owned by a, a Catholic church that had a, an AIDS orphanage, a AIDS clinic, and a disabled children's a home for children with disabilities. Mm. And uh, so for one week, we each had uh, our stint in the, the home for children with disabilities. And I remember that first day when they gave us a tour of that home, how upsetting it was to, to everyone, I think, and especially a few of our members who couldn't even go with us to lunch. They just sat outside the cafeteria and wept and held each other. And that was, and prayed. That it was just that stunning, you know, the, the, what, what we had seen. But yet by the end of the summer, everyone would say, almost everyone I think said to the person, this was the highlight of my, my summer, was actually being able to get to know and really bond with some of these children. And um, it, it had this really profound influence on everyone's life, including and especially Zach, who formed a very strong bond with several of those kids. And, and so actually we are sitting in the, in the room where this story happened. It's in the book, but um, it was about a week before Zach's injury. And we were sharing a laugh and a, a great memory we had with those kids. And uh, all of a sudden Zach turned to me and said, I think he was right over there. <laughs> and he said, dad, uh, this may sound weird, but I just wonder if God would ever have me become like one of them. Mm. And uh, I, you know, I took it serious. It wasn't, um, it, it was, it seems kind of weird in retrospect that he would even say that, but I was like, Zach, you know, that if anything ever happened to you and you did, we would love you the same way that we love those kids. And he's like, yeah, I know that. Wow. You use the word I, ambiguous loss, which I had never heard. Can you share about what that means? So once I realized Zach was not going to have a full recovery, it was about at the one year mark, I started reading grief books and they were not connecting with me at all. Mm -hmm. My family member did not die. So everything I was reading was not applying. And so I finally called the rehab hospital librarian and said, I want to do a research paper on our type of loss, but I don't know the name of it. So can you tell me what is our type of loss? And this guy knew Zach because we would come into the library when he was there. And he sent back articles the next day. And he said, the term for your type of loss is ambiguous loss. And he gave me two links to Pauline Boss's articles. She coined the term. And then I ordered her books immediately and sat down and started to read them. And finally, someone understood what I was going through. Um, so she defines two types of ambiguous loss. The first is when you have psychological presence. So the person is in your mind, but there's no person there. Like there's no body. So it would be natural disasters, kidnappings, people lost at war or then even divorce, adoption, immigration. 
would be other examples. And then type two is the type that we're dealing with where you still have the person there, but psychologically they're not the same. So emotionally and cognitively they're different. So that would be like for us, traumatic brain injury, but also Alzheimer's, dementia, and chronic mental illness and addictions. So when people are dealing with people, they're dealing with the person's body who used to be who they were, but their cognitive and emotional changes are so different. So they have them, but they don't have them. And Dr. Boss called this the most stressful type of loss. There's really no linear process of letting go and rarely is there acceptance. And then there's never closure. And that was the biggest thing that stood out to me is it never ends. It just keeps going on and on. There are no ceremonies for people like us. You only have a ceremony when someone dies. So that validation piece so I was suffering and I was trying to talk to people and they would say, it's so great that Zach lived. And <laughs> yes, it's really great that he lived, but he can't speak. He has no short-term memory. He needs one-on-one care. You have to hold his gate belt every single step. He has 24-7 round-the-clock care for the rest of his life. He'll never marry. He'll never have children. He'll never work alone uh, to have money or live alone. <laughs> So I'm like, yes, it's great. He lived, <laughs> but it's also not great. So we have him, we don't have him. That just creates a lot of stress. Yeah. You wrote in the book about how painful it was when you went into his closet and put away his football stuff. And yeah, that was yeah. bad. Yeah. It was one of the worst days. So I took out all of his football clothing, his basketball clothing, his lacrosse clothing, and then all the helmets for each of those sports or the equipment that he would use for them. And I didn't do this until my mom came. She drove eight hours with my dad to come help me make this transition. But I had to get these things out of the closet to get his new things in. So I hand her all these things and then she hands me diapers. So I take adult diapers And I put them in all the space that his athletic gear used to be in. So it was incredibly difficult. All the grieving along the way of the loss. And then you're working with college students and they're going on with their life. And they're going on and thinking about how Zach was, where he was thinking of going to college and all those things that all along the way, those things that needed to be grieved. Yes, it will continue to happen. So yeah. when his friends went to college, he didn't. So that was hard. First, when they graduated from high school, he didn't. When they went to college, he didn't. When they get married, it will also be hard because then we'll have to grieve that loss. Yeah. yeah. So. I so appreciate you being so honest in the book. And you talk about the guilt. Well, when we showed up at the hospital, the guy at the rehab hospital who was in charge of Zach's care. He was a physiatrist. He said, I think this was probably second impact syndrome. I think your son probably had a concussion. And then before it was healed, he probably got hit again. 
And then after Zach's injury, we found out a parent came by and said that on the bus on the way to the game, Zach asked his son, what does a concussion feel like? Mm. And then after the book came out, another player contacted me because he read that story in the book. And he said, Zach also asked me. So two days before his injury, he asked me, what does a concussion feel like? And Zach came home and had asked for aspirin. And so I said, oh, sure, here's two. I didn't think anything about concussions. <laughs> I just gave him two aspirin. So the guilt for me was, did I miss a concussion? Mm -hmm. Like if I could have caught this, would this not even have happened to my son? Oh, and wow. so the guilt was just killing me. And I, was, I needed to just get to the point where I realized um, this was with help from a grief counselor. I couldn't know what I didn't know. So 12 years ago, there was not this big push toward educating people about concussions. No one even knew what second impact syndrome was in the popular culture, only just a band of research scientists who were working at a really high level. And so it, he was injured in 2008. And most of the things with the NFL broke right after that, that spring with all the studies that were coming out about the damage to the brain. So I just had to let it go. I can't, guilt destroys people. Yeah. And so it was time to let it go for good. Well, and he didn't ask you, um, what does a concussion feel like? He just asked you for two aspirin. aspirin. Yeah. yeah. And you don't even, that's not even, you'd how, how were you ever to know, but it's amazing how we can guilt ourselves, right? Yeah. Just do everything. If only, you know, if the only I could go back, if only. Yeah. Yeah. You said there's never any closure, but you did have a ceremony. And I thought that was so powerful. And can you share, if you want to share, Pat, about the, the ceremony that you had? And I'll start. I think it, it would be good for Tammy to do some of the, the details of that. But I think the, a good way to set that up is to tell you something that I began to learn as Tammy was finally putting a name to the loss that we had, this ambiguous loss. She actually, we were away on a planning weekend about to start. I can't remember exactly when it was, but we, I remember where we were and she dropped her, her research paper on my lap as, as I was sitting there doing other things. And I wasn't surprised at all to find that it was about grief, you know, because <laughs> uh, what I was surprised to find was that it was, um, it had a name for the kind of grief we were experiencing and, mm -hmm. and, and the kind of loss, ambiguous loss. So I read it and shortly thereafter, Tammy floated the idea, which wasn't the first time she had done this, but it was a little bit more nuanced this time. But she said, you know, do you think we could do something on the anniversary of his injury? Um, so she had, she had been doing this herself alone for probably four years by then, right? And I'd always ask, she would always ask me if I would want to do something with her. And that just sounded like a horrible idea. Like I, why would you want to do that? You know, and um, that just sounded so hard and painful. But after reading it and realizing, so one of the things that that she does in, in her work, um, boss, is she, she says that the key to 
living with an ambiguous loss is you have to learn how to live well with both having and not having at the same time. Mm-hmm. And her, the point is, is that you typically will do one or the other, but not both. And sometimes you don't do either, right? Um, it's even more complicated when one person, when you, when two people are experiencing the same ambiguous loss, especially a husband and a wife, and one is doing one and the other is doing the other. In other words, one person is completely obsessing over the son he still has and, and focused on helping him have a full recovery. And, uh, but com- in complete denial about the loss of the son that he once had. And the other has acted like that son is dead. You know, she's treated it like a death, but failing to revise her attachment to the son that is still here and very much alive. And um, <clears throat> that's our story, you know? And so this is, this was uh, not only our story, but the story of our family, because in different ways, different ones of us were doing better at one than we were the other. What we decided on that day was that what if we did two things? Cause that, that was one year where there's a day in between Zach's birthday and his injury. His injury is actually his, his injury. His original injury happened two days before his birthday, and so that was a Saturday. And we thought, you know, that's a weekend. I know it's the start of the school year, but what if we, on that day, did two ceremonies? Like, what if we did the thing that you've been asking me to do for years, which is get a few of our our whole family, uh, some of our extended family, and some of close our closest friends together. And just acknowledge that the Zach that we we had is, you know, no longer there and grieve that in a community. And I said, okay, well, what if we also added this? We went from there to a <laughs> ceremony of, of, well, a birthday party where Zach is there and we could just celebrate the Zach we still have. That's actually exactly your are you're You walked across the street, right? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> And, and wow. you know, that's, but that's one of the things that uh, Boss says about the way to be resilient in that biggest loss is that you need to live what normalizing. We, normalizing ambivalence. You need to make normal this new normal of, of, of feeling at times like he's dead, but he's also acknowledging he's still alive. This sucks, but you know what? we rejoice that, when, that he's still there and, and uh, you love him, but you hate the fact that he now can't walk without having someone have to walk with him or that he, he has to go to the bathroom every 10 minutes or thinks he does, you know, it's like, I hate that, but I love Zach and there's no one I'd be, <laughs> I'd rather watch a game with on a weekend than my son Zach or go to church with and sit next to him. <laughs> And have him put his head on my shoulder. And it's like, it's a lot, but that's the, that's what I mean. And that's what I think she, she means by normalizing ambivalence that day normalize the ambivalence of both having and not having. And did you find that that was healing? Was there some healing that came from that? Yeah. In the first ceremony, Pat did a lot of work with iMovie and went back and did all these pictures he might talk about that later how that ministered to him just looking at those and helped his grieving process and then I had written a song for Zach so we put my song to 
Pat's movie and showed the slideshow. And then we gave people time to write on blue cards things they missed about Zach. And then if they wanted to stand up and read them, they could do that. So it was the first time I had ever heard other people's losses. Hmm. And that was very meaningful to see the connections that he had. Um, then our, each of our family members got up and spoke about what they missed about Zach. So it was not me just verbalizing to Pat, but me verbalizing to 150 people things I'd lost. And I was just able to say it, um, like missing his voice and missing watching his strong body on the athletic fields or water skiing, and, um, ask him asking me how I'm doing um, and being able to interact with me about that. So I got to share those things. And then on the way out, we had people put those blue cards in a bottle signifying the verse in Psalms that talks about how God holds our tears in his bottle. So we got to go home and read every single person's loss. Mm. Everyone put their cards in there. And um, that was very, very meaningful as a family to read those. And it was very meaningful to hear my children and what they lost. Um, very difficult to hear, but good for me. And I wondered by the end, could I go from a crying space where I'm mourning and grieving to a rejoicing, celebrating space? Because once we walked into that next event, Zach was going to be screaming and hugging, hugging everyone. So um, he was not at the first event, but he was at the second. So I actually could make the turn. It helped me make the turn to grieve and then go rejoice with Zach. That was really fun to then celebrate with him. It was healing. There's still no closure, right? Because wow. all those things about Zach and the disabilities he has to deal with still go on, but something turned inside of me during that ceremony. It was the community holding our family mm -hmm. through that loss, I think. You write about that in the book of the, you really can't have healing if you're not willing to go express the grief and move into the what is. Mm -hmm. We just try to just gloss over that and just ignore that piece of it. You have to have both. Um, but then it's not, it does, it's not like it goes away. It's ongoing. Yes. Yeah. Was there a time, Pat, where you really felt, do you want to share about the, the pictures where you just broke down? I mean, you do, do write about that. Yeah. The book, um, you... Yeah. That was actually very cathartic uh, because it's, you know, there's something boss also talks about this. She talks about art and creativity, creating space for your heart to, to grieve. And, um, I've found that with my own, myself lately in the midst of the pandemic and painting, by the way, but that's another note with Zach <laughs> putting that iMovie together, the combination of music and, and pictures um, and just seeing Zach, you know, before his injury and um, listening and putting those song those, those pictures of him to his favorite songs. Uh, I wept a lot do, all that summer doing that. And, yeah, I remember, by the way, right again, right in this spot where we're sitting right now, <laughs> uh, our son Nate had come home from college to be there for that day. 
And he had just walked through the door and I had just finished doing that. And I came in here at this spot and I was so proud that first of all, I was technology, technologically adept enough to do this. So I was, it was more of a that than it was anything I wanted to show them. I said, hey, you want to see what I just finished? And they're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we sit here and I turn this on. And, you know, there's this picture in there. Uh, I hope I can do this without breaking down. He, where uh, they were sledding and, and uh, Nate actually crashed onto Zach. And, they, and I got this picture of them face to face, smiling at each other in the snow. And uh, when Nate, when that picture came up, um, all of a sudden he's, he just pushed away from the table and ran out of the room crying. Mm -hmm. And um, Tammy just decided to follow him and see what was going on, even though she hadn't yet seen this movie either. And so here, Nate Soren and I were left alone, kind of like two, you know, dumb cows looking at each other. Like <laughs> after, after someone shoots a gun, I'm like, what should we do? You know, okay. well, let's just go back to chewing our cud. And, and, um, so we go back and watch the rest of it. And then we go in there and here they are, you know, this was really the moment. To me, this is a culminating point in our story where all of a sudden the whole family began to get it. Like Tammy, I would go to find Tammy and, and Nate and they're on his bed and Nate was apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry, mom, I didn't get it. You lost your son. Oh. And uh, Tammy is saying, no, I get it. You not only lost your brother, but you lost your mom at a, not, at a time when you really needed her. And that was sort of... Mm. A, pinnacle moment because it was this coming together and acknowledging that there really was something here to greet. She talks about being frozen in ambiguous loss. I think that's such a good metaphor for what happens. You, your, your grief process that you would normally have in a more clear and final loss, like a death, is obstructed by this ambiguity of still having it while you, you don't have. And so I think that the ceremony that day was it helped un unlock that frozenness. Wow. Kind of like breaking through the ice and. Right. Yeah. Um, I want you to share about how Zach's been your best teacher. That's yeah. you. No, you. Both of you have a video that you. Okay. And I think it's important to capture too, just, mm. you know, his spirit of how you share who he is. Yeah, well, on vacation one night, Zach seemed lost in the stars. So I said, hey, Zach, what are you thinking about? And he said in his faint, gravelly voice, my beautiful father in heaven. <laughs> Just like this is amazing. He still loves God more than anyone I know. And I just really want a heart like his, even his love for people who don't have homes. So in Harvard square, we have a lot of men and women who are homeless and he knew them all by name before his injury. But still when we walk past homeless people, I will totally miss them. And he stops and pulls my hand and wants to go. And he gets down, even though he can't speak very well. He just, with his face, 
and with his hands communicates love to them. So when I let them encounters with Zach become experiences of inner renewal for me, because he offers me an opportunity to think differently about my own life and my own goals, my own aspirations. Um, And he offers me his presence. He's just there in the present and he gives me a safe place. And in that safe place, I can see my often invisible disabilities. Mm. So he's helped me to see a lot of things about myself that I needed to see. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty much says it for me too. He he, uh, I would put it this way: if if what it means to be a human is to love and commune with God and to really love and connect with people and notice them and be present with them, then I would say Zach, even in his disabled condition, is the most human person I know. Uh, because he really does. And I think there's even something about being locked in the present in his own brain right now where he, did, he has no short-term memory. So he doesn't really think about what just happened. And he doesn't, for some reason, he doesn't seem to ever be anxious or worried about what's ahead. He just lives in the moment. And he's in that moment that he just completely takes on the emotional barometer or whatever of the person he's with so he i'm not kidding on this he'll he'll know something's wrong with me before i do and right she would say the same thing they say dad are you okay i'm like yeah i'm okay and actually no i'm really (laughs) angry right now or or i'm really you know wow yeah but that was some of what was happening that summer in south africa this stuff can't comes full circle, which to me is like the theme of our book, the way some of these things that preceded our life that are now being influencing the life we're in. Um, they have this way of showing you that this, these small stories of loss and pain and suffering and grief need a bigger story to absorb them that can make sense of them and that can give us hope in the midst of them. And I think Zach's story as a whole as a way of doing that. But I think it also points to the bigger story that has, for both Zach and for us, has carried us through this, you know, a story of redemption, mm-hmm. that God can bring good out of suffering and meet you in the midst of it. Well, I certainly know reading this book has increased my faith. And I was talking to my friend that I was ta- sharing with you and saying, And Zach did not lose his faith. Like he had such a faith for the Lord before, and he still does. And she said, and I get choked up by this. She said, of course, that makes so much sense because that's the spirit. It doesn't really, it doesn't have to do with your head. It's the Holy Spirit and it, it's in him. And that's his heart and not his head. And I, I found that so powerful and and people will have to read your book to read about what you said to him in the car I think it was you Pat but I thought I think I want to like write that down and meditate on that of how you said I want to be oh I want to be like you in this way and this way (laughs) this way you know with just his heart and his faith Mm -hmm. so on a final note 
I want to ask two questions. What would you say to somebody that's listening that's grieving? Hmm. Uh, the first thing I would say is be gentle with others and, and yourself. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so. In grief counseling, that was the number one thing that we learned. It's the most stressful type of loss. So we just really have to be gentle with each other. And we actually saved our hot fights, ones that were really complicated for the counseling office. We didn't even talk about them at all. Like if we got in a really big fight, we just put it on pause and said, let's talk about this Wednesday at two with our grief counselor. (laughs) And then we had a third person sitting there listening to us and then just uh, being gentle with yourself because of the stress also. Uh, Second thing is just make space to grieve. I think we move at a pretty high clip in America. Mm -hmm. We move fast and COVID has helped a little bit to slow us down, but to grieve, you actually need space. It takes a lot of energy to grieve. So I would encourage people don't run from pain, grieve it. But to do that, you have to have space. Um, And then uh, remember that God's near you in suffering. That's his nature. If you move toward your pain, you're going to find God there because he hangs there. He's just with people in suffering. And the last one for me is uh, the guilt. You just have to deal with the guilt because it'll kill you. um, to not live in the guilt. If you have conflicted feelings, just take them to the grief counselor or to the counseling office, friends or family, and talk about those conflicted feelings. Um, For me, Cheryl, it would be, actually, this just came to me. I realized the thing that was most helpful for me, the most helpful immediate response was a friend who called me and said simply, I'm so sorry, Pat, this sucks. Yeah. I I say that because I do think my tendency has been to try to cheer them up, try to make them happy, to try to like, I told you about earlier. So I think my first impulse now is just to, uh, to just try to affirm and validate how painful this is and to express my deepest sorrow for them. And then um, I do think the reason we wrote the book is because we needed a story that could help make sense of the kind of loss that we were in and and it didn't exist. It might exist. Maybe someone's read it, but it took us forever just to find out there was a name for our loss, you know? And so, and even, and, and, Pauline Boss's material is so great, but it's for counselors. This is a story of people who are in the midst of it. And I just, I think stories, the good thing about stories is that they can surface and soften the hard emotions of life. And and that's what I hope Hope Hit Hard will do for people who read it. It will validate their pain and, and help create space for them to absorb it. Well, thank you so much. And how is Zach doing now? How, how is he? Just, I think people are going to be like, well, I wonder how he's doing now. So we have the ambivalent, even a month ago, he had two seizures, the first seizures he's had in 12 years, and he's in lockdown. So we haven't been able to see him for months. Mm-hmm. Usually we have him home on Sundays. We hang out with him all day. But in the hospital, 
the nurses would say, Zach, you can't hug because oh, it's COVID. And then he would just squeeze them harder. <laughs> so he really transformed the hospital room with his joy. So he still had, you know, he's still not speaking well, doesn't have much short-term memory. He has a little bit in music. He can remember songs that are current and new. So the music side of his brain, but he still need you need to still hold him. He still needs the 24 seven care, but he's still the happiest, most joyful person I know. And his soul as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. If you want to add anything. I wouldn't add, no. yeah. He's very happy. Well, I thank you just both for sharing your story and being so truthful and honest. I know that people that read it are going to have comfort, be comforted, are going to find some healing and not feel so alone. You're giving voice to what so often we don't want to talk about and or know how to talk about or know how to process. So thank you so much for your book. And tell them where to find you and where to find your book. I just want you to see Zach. He just just called me. Zach, say hi. Look at him. Can you blow blow a kiss, Zach, to Cheryl? Oh, hi. Hi, Zach. (laughs) <laughs> okay, you talk. okay, I'll take this call and Danny can give you that. Oh gosh, I feel like that was such a god thing that I got to see him and he blew me a kiss. He's still kissing you, actually. <laughs> oh, I feel so blessed. I feel like that's right from you know spirit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. We weren't going to answer the phone call when it buzzed, but we thought it might be fun for people to get to see him live on a screen. Oh, absolutely. He had perfect timing. Yes. That he called. So thank you. Tell them where to find your book. So patandtammymcleod.com. It's M-C-L-E-O-D. You can find on the Ambiguous Loss tab articles that I've written on Ambiguous Loss. Then we have a COVID conversations tab because everyone's dealing with Ambiguous Loss because of COVID. (laughs) So we have lots of articles on that that we've written. And there are different places that you can purchase the book on the site, but it's also at Amazon. So Wonderful. And I'll put links everywhere to everything so people can, can find your book. So. It was Thanks. so great to meet you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's so great to meet you too, Tammy. And thank Pat. Uh, you're <laughs> welcome. Back. Back. He's I just back. Said, said goodbye to Zach. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad he called and you got it. So I got <laughs> to see him. Yeah. So, thank you, Cheryl. It's been such back. a pleasure to chat with you. I wish, yeah. wish you were here. Wish you could meet Zach in person. Yeah, maybe someday. Yeah, maybe someday. Yeah, that would be, that would be joy. Wow, weren't they incredible people and such a powerful story. And I was so happy that I got to see Zach face to face. And I just want to say in closing, we're all grieving right now with COVID and our kids are experiencing 
so many losses and grieving, even though we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, we really want to honor our grief and our losses and our kids grief and losses. It's been tough. And if you are struggling right now, if your kids are struggling right now, I want to invite you to reach out to me and send me an email. And I'm here to support you and I can share resources with you. You can just share what's on your heart and I will personally respond. My email is Cheryl at momsoftweensandteens.com. And also, I would love if you would leave a review. I don't normally ask for this, but I would love for other moms to find us so that they can know they're not alone and have encouragement and reassurance. And we all need that, right? And we need the support to support our kids and love them well. So thank you in advance and have a beautiful week. And I will see you back here next time.